0: <yours>. Exocast.
1: Exocast. <laughs> Exocast Exocast Exocast
0: Exocast Exocaust. Exocast
1: Exocast 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 Exocast
0: Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford and I'm as always I am joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. Starting this month, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. We're splitting each of our episodes into a multi-pod system where each of our segments, so our guest segment, our feature discussion and our news are getting their own unique podcasts labeled B, C and D. This means that we'll have exactly the same content for you, but hopefully a little bit more freedom so that you can listen to it when you choose and they're a little bit shorter as well for you then. So coming up on today's podcast, Exocast 42b, we will be chatting with Dr. Stephen Kane from the University of California at Riverside. And then please feel free to check out our other pods, which will be talking about water throughout the universe in Exocast 42c and all of the Exocast news from the last month or so in Exocast 42d. But Andrew, why don't you kick us off, introduce us to our guest this month.
1: It'll be my pleasure. Thank you, Hannah. Um, so, today we are joined by Dr. Stephen Kane, who is an associate professor at the University of California at Riverside, which is just over the Santa Ana Mountains from me here in Irvine. Um, Stephen's research interests include exoplanet discovery, comparative planetology, astrobiology, and have taken him from a PhD at the University of Tasmania to the Space Telescope Science Institute, the University of St. Andrews, University of Florida, NASA's Exoplanet Science Institute, and San Francisco State before UCR. So, welcome to the show, Stephen.
2: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
1: Well, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. And I guess it probably makes sense to start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about where you got started?
2: Yeah. Uh, so to start out, would need to go back to the glorious decade of the eighties. And the reason I wanted to start there, I mean, it was glorious for a number of reasons. But um, uh, music for clothing, music films, clothing, all the that. hair, all, <laughs> that, all that kind of stuff. But um, for me in particular, it was, a, a very interesting decade of solar system exploration. And a huge inspiration for me, for example, were the Voyager spacecraft. The Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft were doing their tour of duty in the outer solar system. Uh, and in the early 80s, uh, Voyager 1 had uh, finished its encounter with Saturn and went off at almost right angles to the ecliptic and was starting to leave the solar system, whereas Voyager 2 continued on. And I remember seeing the images coming in from uh, Uranus in 1986 and Neptune in 1989, and it really penetrated my my teenage consciousness of these were images that nobody had ever seen before of these distant worlds, uh, and it really inspired me to really pursue planetary science. So that was my motivation, my big motivation back then. Then when I was starting grad school in 95, that something else extraordinary was happening, as you well know, uh, the discovery of um, uh, planets around solar type stars. And I think really the big significance of the 51 Peg B discovery was that it clearly was making the technique accessible because one of the things to remember about the two main ways in which we find exoplanets the transit and the radial velocity method is that we've been doing this for over 100 years with eclipsing binaries you know this this is something uh, it wasn't that the technique was new it was that we were pushing it into realms where we were uh, changing the mass ratio and the size ratio of what we could detect Uh, and so then, I mean, p- before then, people were thinking about exoplanets, but there wasn't a great deal of opportunity for someone like me who actually wanted to do a graduate degree in that. But then after that, it became accessible. So that's what I decided to do. I thought, okay, so here's an infinite number of planets uh, <laughs> where where I can um, uh, explore this topic. And so I started out microlensing, uh, and um, microlensing... Is uh, a very difficult technique. Uh, uses the, uh, the Einstein's theory of relativity and the uh, the bending of light from background stars. Uh, and like all of these techniques, we don't see the planet directly. We're indirectly detecting it. We're inferring its existence. So I did that for my graduate degree, and that was when we we're really getting microlensing off the ground. Now it's uh, it's a fairly um, A successful technique there have been tens of planets that have been found with microlensing but when i moved to university of st andrews i started using transits as well as microlensing and that's when i got involved in in the wasp survey which was great because i got some experience in instrument building but also just trying to understand how do we apply this brute force technique which is what transits is um to detect planets and the reason i say it's brute force is because you're the the number one problem with the transit method, of course, is that the probability that a particular transit uh, a planet will transit is is quite low, and so we adopt this brute force approach to beat down that probability by saying, okay, if only one in a thousand stars will have a transit, we'll observe a thousand stars and see one, or ten thousand stars and see ten, and so on. And that's uh, of course exactly how the how the Kepler mission uh, operated by looking at around about 150 or 170,000 stars to, to really beat down that probability. So, um, oh, my, my second postdoc was where I got involved in radial velocities. So I started, uh, using the radial velocity technique. And then soon after that, I started, um, uh, using the, uh, direct imaging technique. So now working on WFS. Yes. I, it's, it's a little bit of a, a bit of a Pokemon collect them all. Partly related to my OCD nature, where I really did feel like I had to collect all of the all of the <laughs> techniques in the series. Um,
0: you heard it here first. Uh, exoplanet <laughs> detection is like Pokemon. <laughs>
2: uh, so, so that's where it, it it really took off. But as I mentioned at the beginning, my my one true love was really planetary science, and s- something that I often stress now that I'm I, I work with both both exoplanet and planetary science communities uh, to, to my planetary science colleagues that uh, that the exoplanet technique is, is not planetary science. It's one of those, uh, almost a misnomer, where you feel like you could chop the exo off and call it planetary science, but it's not planetary science. It is stellar astronomy or stellar astrophysics. Because if you think about what we're doing primarily in exoplanets is, We are studying the stars extremely carefully and trying to infer that it has an object orbiting it. Now, And that's because of the origins, as I mentioned earlier. The main techniques of transits from radial velocities originate um, in in binary stars. And what we have been doing, uh, and we could get away with doing this during the 90s and in the early 2000s, we could get away with just simply being stellar astronomers naively approaching this topic for which we had no idea and that's because we were mostly discovering giant planets and the best that we could say uh, was that this object which is orbiting that star is uh, probably uh, not massive enough to burn deuterium that uh, roughly (laughs) and so especially in the transit technique the, uh, what we spend most of our time doing is trying to convince ourselves and the referee that that the object that we have detected is not a star. That's what we do. Does that explain your move into direct imaging? Because that's one of the only, well, that's basically the only transit or detection method where we actually can separate the planet and the star. Yeah, there was so, so there were several pieces which came together there because. Uh, in, in the mid-2000s, we were preparing for Kepler. And uh, there were several realizations I had, which was, one, that, like I said, we'd been able to get away with this whole um, uh, pre- pretending that, that, uh, that we cared about the planets, whereas we really just cared about excluding stars. That's, oh, that's what we really cared about. Um, but uh, we couldn't get away with that for much longer. And that's because we were entering this realm of mass producing terrestrial planet discoveries. And that's, we were starting to do that with radial velocities, but particularly with Kepler. Uh, It was just going to swamp us with these, this category of planets for which we had no idea. Um, uh, Ironically, except for the PI of the mission, because Bill Baruchi is, of course, a planetary scientist. Um, uh, But most of the people who are using the data were not. Uh, But it's also, as you mentioned, the, the direct imaging, since we, we're not seeing the planets, and in order to be able to understand these terrestrial planets, I knew that eventually we were going to need to move out of this comfort zone that we're currently in of um, indirectly detecting planets. If we have any hope of characterizing them, uh, then we had, to, we had to move on from that. So that's something I'm involved in a lot now, using W first the coronagraph techniques on that uh as a technology demonstration for what we could potentially do in say 10 years 20 years time you mentioned w first there are you um we had it we had an announcement the last week about the the budget once again has zero w first which it has three they or four do that times all now. the time
0: that's I know, but that, that happens constantly and congress puts it back
2: yes yeah, so it has become an annual tradition for the administration to zero out the budget and then for it to be put back in with extra, uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell. So it always seems to blow up in their face. But um, it it is something that we are very concerned about, however, because uh, it is uh, categorized as a technology demonstration, meaning that there will be limited uh, capacity for, say, guest observer observations who want to do particular science. Uh, but... Uh, we want to maintain some minimum chronographic capabilities; uh, otherwise, it it won't be particularly useful. Uh, my my colleague Bruce McIntosh sometimes jokes that if it if it uh, starts to go too much further, then we're essentially just launching an empty tube into space, which has <laughs> limited science application. So, um, so this is actually where I started to. Uh, get really interested in Venus as well, because, as I mentioned, I knew that Kepler was going to be discovering a lot of terrestrial planets, uh, and in particular, the transit method is biased towards short-period planets. So the prime objectives were Kef- uh, of Kepler were to detect uh, terrestrial planets within the habitable zone, and it did do that. However, on the way to doing that, it primarily finds terrestrial planets interior to the habitable zone. And so I realized that, uh, that Kepler w- was a, going to be a mean, lean Venus finding machine. I also say the same thing about Tess, and I've said this to George Ricker, and he takes that, I hope, as the compliment which it is intended to be. <laughs> so, um, uh, and so I, at that point, uh, this is, um, around about 2010, I started inviting myself to Venus science meetings uh and, and showing up and giving talks about what we're learning about Venus analogues um from uh for, from the transit method and from exoplanets in general, uh because the Venus community uh at that stage and to some extent now were was struggling substantially. They they looked with great envy to their Martian colleagues who just seemed <laughs> to get missions and rovers and everything thrown at them. And they were desperate for a connection to, to astrobiology. And when I went to them, I, I said to them, actually, you, you think you need, uh, exoplanets, but, uh, but really, exoplanets needs you. They don't fully know it yet, but they do need you because we're discovering a whole lot of these potential Venus analogs. And, uh, we have, we have no idea, uh, many of the science questions about the nearest planet, the nearest planet to us. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's um, uh, what are the, fascinating things i find about venus historically is that although with mars you know there's a great deal of science fiction literature about martians and so on uh that all died away very quickly because we could see the surface through a telescope and we could see that um uh that there couldn't be any life there that wasn't the case for venus it's covered with clouds and so speculation about it being a jungle planet or something like that
0: persisted well into the late 70s
2: yes yeah, in, in, indeed and it wasn't and here's the scary thing Hannah it it wasn't until we actually went there that we realized how wrong we were. And oh, this yeah. is the this I is the I love scary some thing of the
0: me. early Venus like I say early. Oh dear. Uh I love some of the late <laughs> Venus <laughs> science fiction. It's brilliant and absolutely insane. When you look at what we know and what we understand about the surface and you know the hellscape that Venus is yeah. incredibly hot, incredibly high pressure, so 92 times what we're experiencing ourselves right now, you wouldn't be able to see the sun. It would be this very strange haze color. And people thought it was this luscious rainforest, this but jungle.
2: How, how did people and, not – we don't have spectra? Did we not have well, images so of the clouds? Well, the thing is we, we had we had spectra of the upper atmosphere, but the right. atmosphere is very complex. And uh, the degeneracy, and here's one of the other dangers when it comes to translating studying Venus to exoplanets, because with exoplanets, when we study atmospheres, we'll be getting transmission spectra at the top of the atmosphere where the, where the opacity allows it. Uh, but then you have to uh, deal with the degeneracy of models which uh, accommodate a temperature, pressure, compositional profile, all the way down to the surface... And the degeneracy is huge, um, and so that's the problem with Venus. And and, and yes, there were some amazing science. There were science fiction movies being produced by Hollywood up until about the mid '60s. That's when we started to get an indication from the Venera landers and and well, the, the Venera early Venera spacecraft, a Mariner spacecraft, yeah. which were passing by. But it wasn't until the Venera landers actually went down. And the scary thing for me is that. And for anybody who's interested in exoplanet atmospheres, uh, is that for the nearest planet, we did not know the nature of the surface until we went there. And the corollary of that, of course, is that we will never have in situ data for an exoplanet. We're not sending a lander to Proxima Centauri B, the, by definition, the nearest exoplanet, you know, and we're not sending <laughs> an orbiter to Trappist One E. We're not doing any oh, of that. Hell no. So that's not happening. So so what are we going to do in the face of this? And the the way I think about it is that we all, all of the models that we create for exoplanet atmospheres are based upon in situ data from our solar system, and that means Venus, Earth, Mars, Titan, basically. Uh, and we have to understand these as best we can and just hope to hell <laughs> we're getting it right for places that we're never going to go to. I mean, and this is where the direct imaging comes in, of course, because um, transmission spectra, like I said, will mostly get us at the top of the atmosphere. But uh, I think once we enter the realm of direct imaging, that will help a lot of having the uh, reflectance spectrum.
1: So, Stephen, I I find it really interesting, um, the discussion that you had there with Hannah about our changing perception of Venus. And arguably, Venus itself is, is a changing planet. It's not static in time. And there's some recent research from Mike Way's group at at Goddard that said that Venus was probably habitable for maybe a billion years. I don't know what you think about, about that take uh, on the planet. But I mean, there's a possibility that it's also a snapshot for what the Earth might look like in two billion years. So you have this, you know, this, this, this temporal, habitability that changes over time so if we're looking for a venus and an, an exo venus for example how could we tell if we were at that pre-runaway venus stage or the post-runaway venus stage would it be easier to find one or the other um yeah
2: it's 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 one of those uh, it, uh, you're right there's a lot of recent work on this topic and it's going backwards and forwards and mike ways a is a very good friend of mine he i saw him last week at the exoplanets in our backyard meeting and and he visited here, actually, just these past few days. And we spoke more about this. Um, well, the uh, the issue there is that uh, oftentimes when we look at the solar system, of course, we tend to look at the present epoch. That's where we can directly observe. But if that's all you ever do, then you're missing most of the information that the solar system has to offer because the access of time is critical. And whenever... Uh, we think about habitability, you'll often hear people say, well, we only have one data point. We should all be upset when we hear that because we have at least two because um, Venus is showing us the boundaries of habitability. And if Mike and others, and and I do subscribe to to, to those points of view, if it once had a temperate surface conditions, uh, then how did that change occur? That's critical to understand because there's a very good chance that if we observed our solar system when it was two giga years or even three giga years old, we would have uh, observed two planets with surface liquid water. And that's profound. Uh, So so there's a lot to consider there with the the past habitability of of Venus. And a lot of this can be answered through... uh, to return missions where there's a lot of things we don't know about the surface of course we know that the surface well, one of the issues with venus of course is that it has this surface which is all about the same age of uh, around about 700 mega years uh and we we refer to that as the stagnant lid and there was some resurfacing event but it kind of gives us a blank check in a way in what could venus have been like before that resurfacing there could have been a series of resurfacing events uh, that have gone on throughout its history, or it could have been habitable. We don't know. Um, and, but it's there's growing evidence that Venus did, in fact, have substantial surface liquid water. For example, the deuterium-to-hydrogen ratio in the atmosphere is extremely high, much higher than that for the Earth, and this is kind of speaking to recent water loss for, from the uh, top of the atmosphere. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to learn um, about habitability, from Venus it's kind of uh where habitable planets go wrong but this goes to your other point Andrew about the future of the earth because um myself and and Vicky Meadows both say that uh that Venus can be thought of as the end state of all habitable planets like all roads lead to Venus that one day earth will turn into Venus um as as the sun grows more luminous or you know as as we accelerate the process ourselves <laughs> uh, so um, so that, that 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 is an important part of the whole discussion as well about where does habitability start, what is the evolution of habitability, and where does it end? And um, having that signpost right next to us. Uh, we're very, very fortunate. In fact, uh, there's a quote from a friend of mine, Francois Faugé, uh who is a, a climate modeler. And if you're not familiar with his work, uh, Francois is, he's, he's, he's one of the leaders in terms of people who have applied Earth-based GCMs to a variety of terrestrial environments. Uh, he was on the, uh, New Horizons team and he actually applied his GCM to the plutonium atmosphere, which is bizarre to me insofar as you, uh, call, call that an atmosphere. A- and it is, and it can be described, um, by his model. But he has applied his model to Venus, uh, and the issue with the Venetian atmosphere is that we can model the present Venetian atmosphere. We can model the present uh, Earth atmosphere. We cannot model the transition from Earth to Venus because some people think of Venus as, as kind of like a black hole. If you just keep adding mass, it'll just collapse into a singularity. It's not like that. If you just keep adding carbon dioxide, there are many changes that happen in atmospheric chemistry. and our models can't accommodate that. So... Um, uh, what Francois said about uh, Venus he said if we did not have Venus in our atmosphere uh, sorry if we did not have Venus in the solar system we would not dare to imagine it meaning that if you can imagine and sometimes when I give talks I ask people to imagine this if you imagine our solar system as just Mercury, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn and so on it's, it's very scary to think how cavalier we would be about simply attributing habitability to the size of the planet. Well, we would, uh, we would speculate about if we moved Earth a little bit closer, maybe a bit warmer, maybe we would have a moist greenhouse or something like that. But we would get it wrong and we know that because we can't do it for the planet which is there and it's telling us. Exactly it makes, it makes you wonder happen. what else we're missing, right? It, if we had yeah. a super,
1: if super Earth in our in our solar system, for example, we'd probably learn a lot more.
2: So, so when it comes to whole the whole habitability question, Venus is the universe's way of really giving us a challenge, you know, and saying, "Here you go, guys, explain this. See if you can uh, wrap your minds around this. So far, we can't, and uh, it's uh, but we do need to to unlock that. So you've kind of.
0: You've kind of demonstrated uh, that it's incredibly difficult for us to characterize the difference between a, a you know small planets in our own solar system and how the transiting technique isn't going to work so well for these small planets. And, and we know that it's it's fantastic for these giant planets, but for these smaller worlds it's it's much more difficult because we're only grazing the surface that the, the uppermost parts of the atmosphere. You hinted at direct imaging and how that's the future. So as, as somebody who characterizes atmospheres and wants to just, I really want to understand the nature of these planets themselves as, you know, individuals, what are the things we should be looking for in a Venus compared to an earth? Uh,
2: the differences, are uh, mostly I would say in the, uh, the pressure temperature composition profile, um, for how can
0: we get at that without a probe?
2: Right. (laughs) So we, uh, of course, we are trying to be ingenious about this. And and, and just to be clear on what's happened with the mission since Venera. Venera are the only uh, missions which went to the surface. Since then, uh, we've had the NASA Magellan mission, uh, which was an orbiter and uh, used radar mapping to create some uh, currently our best topographical maps of the surface. And then we had the European uh, uh, Venus Express mission, VEX, as it's sometimes called. And uh, we currently have the Japanese Katsuki mission, which is returning beautiful, beautiful images. The, um, uh, the detector on that goes well into the ultraviolet, which is able to penetrate further into, into the clouds than the previous ones. So uh, that also have been ground-based observations of Venus, which have used some very clever techniques to look in the infrared at the night side of Venus. To measure the emission that way, but none of these things really get at the detailed composition and the uh, the pressure profile of the atmosphere, and we really need that. We're still using the data from the Venera landers, uh, and it's um uh, it, it's something we're pushing for at the moment. Uh, there's uh, I I'm on the steering committee of of Vexag, um, and so I. For those of you who don't know what, what VEXAG is, the, NASA has created a bunch of AGs, which are analysis groups. Uh, the exoplanet community probably is familiar with Exopag. Uh, but there's AGs for all of these. There's OPAG for the outer planets. And there's VEXAG for Venus, Venus Exploration uh, Analysis Group. And so we are dealing with the science questions that can be addressed with a lander that would go back to the surface. Um uh but but uh, unfortunately that that's what it really needs but one one thing to point out about that is that sometimes when i talk to people about going back to the surface of venus their minds do go back to the venera missions and they think well that's only going to last an hour and (laughs) wow people are understandably reluctant to to fund a billion dollar flagship mission that will only give an hour's worth of surface data but the uh incredible thing um One of the incredible things I've learned over the past decade of going to Venus missions is how much the technology has come forward. I mean, obviously, we're we're able to uh, develop far more sophisticated landers. But, of course, when you put something in uh, a high-temperature, high-pressure environment, like the surface of Venus, the first thing that goes is the electronics. Uh, But that technology has improved dramatically. And at NASA Glenn, they have uh, uh, the world's largest Venus chamber where they're able to simulate the surface of mars and test these technologies and now we can send landers that would um i I thought maybe it'll be days but now it's like weeks and months and at the last vexag mission somebody even proposed a rover a rover for the for the surface wow that would be amazing i I it's a bit hotter than than the melting point of lead isn't that the surface yes yeah. yes it is that would be incredible then <laughs> so <laughs> the it, so it's another one of these um cases where you have to certainly rise to the challenge but um special uh,
0: composite materials
2: yeah and, and uh the other thing about the surface is that uh Only although the Russians we know- have
0: made it there so far <laughs> yeah.
2: and and it's always it's always a uh, Funny to me, when I look at the, when you see the pictures of an era, because they look very Russian, you know, because from that era, they, the Russians were designing these juggernauts, you know, that yeah. looks look like, like they could it's survive absolutely anything. huge.
0: And one of my favorite things is that the, the Russians have been able to land on Venus, but have never successfully landed on Mars. But the US is the opposite. They have only successfully landed on Mars and haven't even tried Venus. And I love that. I think it's, uh, those two different environments really speak... <laughs> to that
2: yeah yeah it's it's kind of well we'll go the easy route well yeah (laughs) um, (laughs) uh so so we do need to go back to the surface of venus i mean it's 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 challenging the other thing of course is the we often talk about the temperature but the pressure the the pressure at the surface is equivalent to one kilometer depth in the ocean which is um, that's a significant... I mean, it's way below which is the say, 700 meters
0: deeper than a human can go without some protection. Although we have actually sent submarines down to that depth
2: now. I know. We need that to get James Cameron on the job of designing something. <laughs> for
0: the- we ha- we <laughs> have sent things down to that depth.
1: So I guess, Stephen, uh, this all comes down to the question, what would your ideal Venus mission look like? Would it be an orbiter, a lander, or rover? A well, so... Balloon,
2: nice. Balloon, but yeah. So zeppelin. Those, you've essentially encapsulated the, the the four main components that people have been talking about, which is the orbiter, uh, a, a glider, uh, a balloon, and a lander. Those are essentially the the, the main components. Um, so, of course, this all needs to be framed around the science questions that we're trying to answer, uh, and. The kinds of, uh, I mean, obviously a very prevalent question is, uh, where is, uh, did it have surface liquid water, and, and where did that go? And so, in order to do that, we need to look at the, um, uh, we need further measurements of the D to H ratio in at the top of the atmosphere, and so that's where the the glider or the or the balloon would come in. But we also do need to study the surface geology because one of the main issues when you're removing substantial amounts, say an ocean's worth of water, then it leaves you with a lot of oxygen. And so you remained with the, uh, with the question, where did the oxygen go? How, how can we deal with this? Because there's only a certain amount you can, uh, you can oxidize the surface and then subduct that into the interior. Uh, and so it would have an impact on the kind of rocks that we would find on the surface. So there would definitely be some clues there. So I think that those are the kinds of uh, questions we need to be answering. Um, but we a, a key part of that is, um, uh, is is there ongoing subduction or any, any geological activity? So far, we've mostly have indirect evidence of volcanic emission. Uh, Venus Express uh notice some hot spots that could be attributed to current volcanic activity uh but it's um it's, it's mostly indirect so we need we do need actually a better map of the surface so if we had uh an orbiter that was like magellan plus you know the the radar um uh, method that it was using it was able to do much better there because um the way a colleague of of mine put it um uh, Sue Shmika from JPL who works on Venus and she works on subduction of this of the surface we think of it as, as a stagnant lead but there could possibly still be movement going on she said that if um, we had a map of the earth using the resolution of Magellan data we would not see the Grand Canyon that's the kind of uh, issue that we're dealing with we're trying to resolve the surface so we need much better um, uh, resolution of the surface but when it comes back to exoplanets, another thing that we're trying to do is uh, model the interior of exoplanets. And there's a lot of people who are working on this. There's a colleague of mine named Kamen Unterborn, uh, also Natalie Hinkle, who are using the abundances of stars to infer the compositions of, possible compositions of exoplanets. And then they uh, use these um, uh, models to create ternary diagrams of the, of the interior of exoplanets. Uh, but that's all based mostly on Earth because we don't know a lot about the composition of Venus and we don't even know the size of the core because it rotates very slowly, it doesn't have a moon. We know actually very little about its local gravitational field and so uh, it would be useful to have an orbiter that is also equipped to get better measurements of the gravity field of Venus. That way we might be able to start... Uh, getting insight into its moment of inertia, which would tell us the, the, the yeah, size of the Yeah, something similar
0: to what we've got on the Juno mission, which is currently in orbit around Jupiter, which is trying to understand that gravity field and learn a little bit more about the interior composition of the giant planets as well. And I, exactly. I think that this kind of conversation and just how much information we need to understand about Venus just really highlights that we've got these test tube planets outside of our own that we can use, which are right there that we can throw things at. But it's important to kind of remind ourselves that everything that we're going to learn about exoplanets and the way that our solar system fits into that is through remote observations. And we are going to only get a glimpse of very small aspects of those. How do you think the fact that the planets that we're discovering, you know, span a huge range that, doesn't potentially encapsulate our solar system. How do you think that that changes the way that we should be looking at our own planets?
2: Yeah, it's that's something I think a lot uh, about a lot because uh, uh, I think we've definitely entered the realm of exoplanet demographics. Uh, the 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 real contribution that exoplanets brings to understanding the solar system is the is the 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 overwhelming power of the statistics is kind of this giant sledgehammer that we can use to Yeah and the to, microlensing
0: to... survey on wfest is gonna be really fantastic for that.
2: Exactly, yeah, and that's that's certainly the power of um uh of of microlensing. Um but uh as I mentioned earlier, uh we don't see any of the, the exoplanets that we're finding. Um uh but we can see the ones here in our solar system how can we and, and i i spoke about that um uh, recently when i showed this slide which was uh, one box said here's a typical picture of a terrestrial planet from from the solar system and i had a picture from i was cheating a little bit because i i used an a Katsky image of venus which is beautiful right but but in the next box it said here is our very best picture of a terrestrial exoplanet and of course there was nothing in that um and, and, and so when you <laughs> the point of that is is uh, to to try and uh, bring home the extent of the apparent disconnect between solar system and and terrestrial exoplanets about what we can learn from each other. But but really the, the connection that that I push is it's where solar system uh, uh, observations translate into exoplanet observations. Uh, for example what i've been talking about understanding the atmosphere of venus and how that would translate into transmission spectra but the other direction uh, like you're saying hannah about these the, the statistics about what we can learn about this diversity and how that translates back into our, our solar system of course the big elephant in the room is that we don't have a super earth we don't have anything that's between the size of earth and neptune uh and, and it's it's something that uh, I'm sometimes prone to a little bit of despondency about because we never, ever will. We never will have no. that analog. and Don't so worry,
1: we're despondent about it on the show all the time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit of a thorn in our sides. And, and I mentioned earlier how I sometimes ask my, uh, uh, when I'm giving a talk and I'll ask the audience to imagine the solar system without Venus, I also ask them to imagine a solar system with a super earth, something which is like two earth radii between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter. It's, it's That's where there. I put it too. Yeah. <laughs> it's the natural place to put it. It's I the mean, natural Titus, place to put it. Titus. Yeah. Normally I just wipe
0: out Mars. Sometimes I'm just like, yeah, forget Mars. Let's turn that into.
2: <laughs> so, but, but also to, to mention, if, if we had that there, imagine mm-hmm. how many missions would be there right now oh, how many so orbiters many. we would have how many and we'd all remember when isa dropped that probe into this planet and it's all holding our breath because we didn't know if it had a surface and we're just like wondering is it going to hit something or is it going to, you know and um the amount of effort we would pour into that planet would be incredible and we'll never ever have that and it's difficult to know what to do uh With that lack, (laughs) other than to really
0: really bum out your audience for a little
2: bit. Yeah, I'm Uh, pretty bummed (laughs) out. So, um, uh, one of the things that we focus on in terms of demographics now is uh, things like the mass radius relationship. Um, and sometimes we'll, we'll maybe color code it, uh, by, uh, the insulation flux. Uh, especially for the giant planets, if they're close to their stars and they could be inflated. Um, but I, I, what I'm looking forward to in the years ahead is as we learn more, uh, and unlock more parameters, uh, of these terrestrial planets. As I mentioned earlier, we're kind of in this safe space of finding terrestrial, uh, planets via the transit method. We know how to do transits really well and, and measure masses through radio velocity, you know, and, to the point where it's almost just like cranking a handle, right? But but we need to move out of that safe space. We absolutely have to because we have to move on to to other techniques which are going to give us the rotation period and various and the obliquity and various other properties that are, as you know, especially Andrew, it have profound influences on habitability and climate effects at the surface. Uh, we absolutely need to move on to those. And once we build those demographic plots, mass versus radius, we, we need to be able to color code. By the rotation period and other things like that, that will teach us a lot more uh, about uh, things like what we observe in our solar system—the retrograde uh, orbit or, or almost synchronized uh, uh, locking of Venus—and why Earth uh, isn't isn't tidally locked. Although Rory Barnes says that it should be if it wasn't for the Moon-forming impact, um, but there's there's a lot to learn about that once we unlock. Um, Look uh, how that actually exoplanets. happened,
0: and whether or not the theories that we've got are correct.
2: Yeah, the, the part of the issue is, of course, is that when we look at the terrestrial planets, there's so much going on that appears to have stochastic origins, and uh, <laughs> and the only way we're going to, and with such a small sample, it's very difficult. It's like, very
0: very low number statistics. Try and like, make
2: some generalized idea about it, and so we have to have the statistics of exoplanets to try and explain that.
1: Okay, well, that seemed like a, a nice place to bring our discussion to a close. Um, but we're going to hear from Stephen uh, again when we ask him to select a an adopted planet for our list. Now, I have an idea about what it might be, but I don't actually know. So
2: uh, let's turn it over to Stephen to find out what he chose. Uh, so let me be in- in- incredibly cheeky. Oh, and no. ask if I it's can. It's always pick, welcomed. No. Can I pick two? Oh. Well, because, well, I was, so I was, I was expecting that you might say no. Because, but <laughs> That's <laughs> just me. That's just Hannah.
0: always me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what I will do, you very briefly, I will tell you very briefly my short list of two and which one I pick. Okay. okay. And, and why. So they're two very different kinds of planets that kind of represent two very different areas of my research. The first is HD20782B. Now, this is a uh, planet which is about 50% more massive than Jupiter. Uh, It's in an orbital period of almost 600 days or about 1.6 years. Uh, And it's, it's it's, uh, as far as we can tell, a single planet system. So far, you're thinking, well, that sounds very vanilla. Why on earth would you pick that? Here's the reason why it's special. It's in the most eccentric orbit of any planet we know of. It has an eccentricity of 0.97. I know some people think of HD 8606. That's an awesome planet as well, but it only has an eccentricity of 0.93. The reason people think of that is because it transits. HD 20782b does not transit, but 0.97. By God, it's um, uh, it's a real mystery as to how it could have had such a high eccentricity. Undoubtedly, some something catastrophic has happened. Probably, we think, in cases like this, the uh, interactions between two giant planets, which has ejected one and left the other in this extremely eccentric orbit. So I love that that planet because I love Keplerian orbits, and a lot of my research focuses on eccentricity distributions. So the other one that I'm going to pick, and maybe this is the one that you were thinking of, Andrew, uh, is Kepler-1649b. And it wasn't. I
1: thought you were going to pick Venus, if I'm yeah, honest. Yeah, oh, I, I thought you were going to pick Venus, too.
2: It. That's why I was oh, saying no. So I thought you were going to pick Venus. that it would... Well, so let me tell you why 1649b is awesome, and maybe we'll wrap around mm-hmm. to that, because uh, Kepler 1649b is a terrestrial planet. In fact, it's only 8% larger than the Earth, so it's very close to the Earth in size. Uh, but... Here's uh, where it's actually more uh, similar to Venus. Venus receives 1.9 times the Earth flux, uh, and uh, Kepler 1649b receives almost the same amount. So, uh, and it's only in an 8.7 day orbit because it's around an M dwarf, and so it's in one of these compact systems. But it is the closest analog we have in terms of size and insulation flux to a true Venus analog. And I wrote a paper about it last year where I used a Rocky 3D, which is a GCM, uh, to to model the surface. And every single simulation I ran of the surface of this planet, very cl- quickly, the surface liquid water was lost and it was pushed into a, a, all the beginnings of a runaway greenhouse. As I mentioned earlier, we can't properly model that, but we can see the transition from temperate into moist um, uh, greenhouse. So 1649 um, uh, is the other one. On my shortlist, like I said, two very very different planets. <laughs> Out of those two, I am going to have to pick Kepler sixteen forty nine b because of the connection to Venus. But good, but, that's a fantastic But, Of course, one. I, <laughs> I, I would always uh, naturally go to Venus. But if I, um, I were to choose Nexoplanet, that's the one that I would pick.
1: Well, I mean uh, Jesse Christensen, who you know uh, as well, obviously she chose um, the next one, which I think is the the cheekiest the cheekiest data <laughs> that we've had so far in terms of our adopted planets so That's venus would output. have been fine but i think actually hd207 whilst not now adopted planets list has been in exocast uh, exocup for at least it 2 has. years and we it's also been HD selected
0: in. at least 3 different times by laura yeah. Mayorga
1: as well as
0: the favorite planet so you've got a oh, really? you've got a friend there for that that love of that exoplanet
1: it is a popular <laughs> planet and we highlighted its eccentricity too but 1649b is a great
2: choice yeah,
0: yeah. i take back my no
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, and thanks very much to Stephen Kane for joining us on this episode. Don't forget to look out for our other two pods this month, where I cover the news and we discuss universe the water in the universe. Um, but for now, thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test k Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening.